You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine one year on, a special episode of the Daily reflecting on the first anniversary of Europe's biggest war for 80 years. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle 24 staffers Carlotta Ribello, Marco Sippi and Jack Simpson will reflect on an extraordinary 12 months for Ukraine and for Europe. We'll have the latest from Kiev and we'll look at how Ukraine has used and improved its image in the wider world. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by our senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Ribello, who has reported from Ukraine for us over the past year, and by our executive producer, presenter, Marcus Hippie, and by Monocle Magazine's editorial assistant, Jack Simpson. Hello to you all. Hi, Andrew. Hello, hello. Uh, we will have much more from all three of you shortly, but to Ukraine firstly, because today's Daily is inevitably and quite rightly very Ukraine-themed. It is one year ago today that Russia launched its full-scale assault on its neighbour. The idea seems to have been that Ukraine's comedian president would run, that resistance would wilt, and that the Russian army would march triumphantly into Kiev through a blizzard of rose petals within 72 hours. A year later, Volodymyr Zelensky may be Earth's most admired individual. Ukrainians have put up an astonishing fight, and Russia has not held on to a major Ukrainian city. Well, I'm joined, first of all, from Kiev by Natalia Gumanyuk. Um, Natalia, we'll talk about the present day shortly, but if you think back to one year, what was your first realisation that this was actually happening? I should say that I realised it within the first air bomb at 5am, as I didn't sleep that night. Um, and um, also... Probably we all were expecting that there would be the war in the eastern uh, part of the country uh, and people were taking it very seriously. Um, and that was realization. And I'm now not overdoing. I really kind of felt that something of a scale of the Second World War started because, you know, we, we knew contrary to what you just said in, uh, in explanation, in Ukraine, nobody really doubted that the Ukrainians would resist till till uh you know till the last moment uh, so it was clear that there won't be just like this fast occupation and the fall but there would be a long war um a year later uh, when you think back to that moment are you surprised that ukraine has held up as well as it has I can say I'm fully surprised because, again, we expected the the rebellion. Uh, maybe we underestimated the Ukrainian army, you know. Maybe uh, and and that it would be capable to uh, you know to fight and not let in the military action uh, the the Russians to overtake the capital and you know be able to do what they are doing. Uh, but I couldn't really imagine that even if if there would be the Russians success in some way that that would hold that would be more damage more tragedies more you know lives lost people killed the persecution all the things might happen but uh, and so the war might have been uh, you know bloodier and uh, with a bigger death toll that's probably what was you know my pessimistic scenario 
Um, you've written a fair bit around the anniversary, uh, both for The Guardian and for Foreign Affairs, and I, I recommend both those piece, pieces rather to our listeners. But what's your sense of what Ukraine has discovered about itself in the last 12 months as a nation? Uh, so, first of all, um, that um, for a while Ukrainians were like the society which was used to live in this kind of semi-democratic, semi-authoritarian country where there was a stronger position, strong civil society, democratic media, but it was always a bit like agonistic antagonistic relation with the state, you know, the less of trust. What I feel today that a lot of Ukrainians who for years and even centuries relied on the, you know, soul heroes movements, you know, this kind of a typical idea how you see the society, you know, post-authoritarian society, it's probably really the first time in the Ukrainian history where the state is actually serving its citizens and defending its citizens. So people are more surprised and how efficient all of a sudden, you, because there were so much talks about Ukraine being non-efficient. And what is surprising that altogether, and I also should say that the, the people and the country and the state authority they all must be inter they are interconnected uh, that, that that this works this works when things working together and uh, I do have a lot of positive su surprises you know about public service about the Ukrainian business but also Ukrainian people from all over the country I, the the world's understanding of Ukraine's resistance has of course been mediated through the uh, the figure of President Volodymyr Zelensky and clearly he has been very important to Ukraine on the world stage is he perceived as that crucial within Ukraine? Uh, he is respected. That's very, very important. Ukrainians rarely respect their politicians. It's it's really probably I would say rather than admired, the respect is is really there. To some people, the gratitude. Uh, we just you know watched the three uh, three hours press conference with international journalists, and I, I feel like that people are kind of taking care, saying, like, you know, the president feels like he's working tirelessly. Uh, but I think that uh, there are way more, he's definitely the role model for a lot of uh, public politicians. Uh, that's what I also mentioned while while the year of working. So really, what he acts would be the role model for local mayors, for the regional governors. Uh, that's how it works rather than, you know, like this kind of admiration. Uh, and, and just finally, uh, Ukraine has obviously been through an extraordinary trial over the last year, um, which has cost it uh, just incalculably in terms of its resources and the people that have been lost. And of course, this isn't over yet. But when you think ahead to the coming weeks and months, are you still able to be broadly optimistic? Look, I, we were very cautious about this winter, really thought that maybe the energy system would collapse uh, by February, by the end of February, we living also in the, in, in the city somehow without, in Kiev, I'm, without a blackout, so kind of Ukrainians adapted. There were really concerns about the earlier, um, you know, m more massive attack from Russia, um, you know, maybe in the mid of February. So far, it's clear that it somehow started, but in the Donbass. So I think people are a bit 
more I, w- I wouldn't use the word relax but let's say they are more calmed down there is less anxiety uh but in the end uh i think there is a shared idea that you know it's very hard to speak about in the terms how long the war would last because it really depends on the resources ukrainians have you know the better resources ukrainians have the the, the faster it can end it's it, it's really not the theoretical question it really depends on what is invested at a given moment Natalia Gumanyuk in Kiev, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily and we'll bring the panel in now to discuss some other themes linked to the first anniversary of Ukraine's war. And NATO especially has been a key player in this conflict. And NATO's insistence on unanimity in all things is an obvious advantage when it comes to promoting cohesion and solidarity, two virtues without which any defensive alliance will struggle. It is a disadvantage, however, in that it leaves NATO vulnerable to spoiling tactics by any posturing yahoo of a national leader who fancies getting his name in the papers, however strategically inconsiderable the country they lead. Viktor Orban, Prime Minister of Hungary, has announced that more talks are needed before Hungary's parliament decides whether to ratify the NATO membership applications of Finland and Sweden. Hungary is one of two NATO members, the other being Turkey, yet to sign off on the enlargement. Um, Marcus, first of all, um, as Monocle's resident Finn, obviously taking a keen interest in this. Are, are you perplexed that it has, that it's still taking this long? It was quite early on that Finland and Sweden finally got off the fence about NATO and nearly a year later, still not entirely in the alliance. I think this is something we knew to expect anyway. I remember already in the beginning when Finland and Sweden were sending the NATO applications, it was said that Hungary may be the, the, the tricky one, but actually it turned out to be Hungary and Turkey. So supposedly some officials were saying that Turkey had initially said that they would have no problems with Sweden and Finland's membership. But it sounded like maybe maybe there was a slightly different signal coming from Hungary. But looking at Viktor Orbán's, what he's done in the past and what kind of politician a leader he is, I guess it doesn't come exactly as a surprise. So what he's been saying this morning, for example, is that he, he said that he is pro-Finland and Sweden's NATO membership. But he also said that there are many politicians in his party who don't think that NATO expansion to that part of the world would be a good idea. They said that one of the concerns, for example, is that when Finland joins NATO, then there's going to be over a thousand kilometers longer border between NATO mm-hmm. and Russia, and that is increasing, supposedly, the, the, th- risk, the risk of, of a war. I don't know. My impression is that it's just theatre. I guess Viktor Orban wants to show that he's not a dictator, that he that there is still some kind of democracy in Hungary. And he's also said that delegations are going to go to Stockholm and Helsinki now to, to talk to Finnish officials and, and ask, some, ask about some remaining questions. But at the same time, the Hungarian parliament is going to be looking at this issue already on Wednesday this coming week. So these delegations, they really have to rush. Uh, I can exclusively reveal that the foreign desk, not this Saturday, but Saturday week will be going into this issue in greater detail. Sounds good. Can I also say that it's also interesting, <laughs> this message that this this whole thing tells us about how urgent Hungary thinks that this whole issue is. I think it's a good example that Estonia, which is obviously one of Finland's closest neighbours, Estonian parliament took a break from their summer holidays in July to go to the parliament and vote through Finland and Sweden's mm. NATO membership. 
I haven't heard any good explanations why it's taken this long for Hungary to even start looking at this thing. Uh, Carlotta, the question of European resolve, EU resolve, NATO resolve has obviously been a dominant theme of the last year. Um, Ukraine has kept a very anxious eye on this and a recurring theme of Vladimir Zelensky's addresses has been that, you know, that this is Europe's war. It's just Ukraine that is fighting it. Are you surprised by how well it has held together, even from as far away west as your home country of Portugal. Well, you almost sound like Zelensky himself when he <laughs> spoke to the Portuguese parliament. As we know, he likes to make uh, uh, comparisons between Ukraine and said nations and also... Um, he did struggle a bit with Australia, and, <laughs> I have to say. He made also, a game effort. But. And also, like, look into the history. And, of course, the parallel he used with us was the fact that there's the two countries on opposite sides of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, But uh, I digress here. I, I think it has been... The past 12 months have been an extraordinary testament to why the European Union was founded in the first place. Um, I think over the years, it's been easy to forget. I'm privileged enough to have been born in democracy and in peace. Not everyone can say the same mm-hmm. across the European continent. And it's easy to take those things for granted. And the European Union has been... Uh, one of the biggest peace instruments that has been set up in recent years. And the quickness and coming together of nations uh, around Ukraine, both in terms of uh, political solidarity, uh, sending the right messages, delivering aid, um, obviously uh, taking in refugees across the continent, I think has been something that if we take a step back and actually look at it, um, it is extraordinary just how fast so many of these mechanisms were implemented and were in place. Now, this is not to say that there's not issues and that it couldn't be better. And, you know, we we were just talking about the issue here of um, accession to NATO. And it's a a time where, you know, wanting to give everyone an equal voice can sometimes slow down the process um, and have being able to for someone or for a nation to have a veto when all mm-hmm. the others uh, are in favor of a completely opposite direction. So, of course, I'm not saying it is the right, uh, the, the, the only way of doing things. But I, I do think looking back at the past 12 months and just the way um, the European nations have come together, it is quite amazing when you see nations that are at the same economic level of Ukraine, if not poorer, taking in refugees and welcoming welcoming people with open arms, no questions. Uh, when we see, you know, might seem like uh, a PR stunt and for many might well be, but it shouldn't be diminished how significant it is for all these leaders to take the risk to go into uh, Ukraine at different parts of the conflict. And I don't know if you remember within the first week or so, there was a small delegation. I think it was Moldova's PM, Romania. Mm-hmm. It was what you'd saw, say small European nations, but they're neighboring Ukraine and they wanted to make a point of saying we're here. And they went into Kiev when bombs were falling and it was the first of the big signals of why it matters to go there. So that's my main takeaway from the past couple of months, actually. I I did want to ask as well, because you've made a couple of reporting trips to Monaco Mm -hmm. uh, since the war began, the second one to talk to the Foreign Minister, Dimitri Kaleba. And what was your general sense of how nervous slash vigilant Ukraine is about keeping European resolve marshaled behind them? Because 
Their nightmare scenario must be the one that I, I think, alone at this table am old enough to remember, which is only as far back as the 1990s. A European capital city was laid siege for four years and people just sort of tuned it out. Well, yes, and uh, on both trips, uh, the biggest concern on the backdrop of all conversations I had was this idea of losing momentum, mm. of uh, Ukraine's story losing momentum, and that's why they keep engaging with foreign officials from Europe and beyond they keep engaging with journalists. They keep these communications channels open exactly so that the story doesn't lose momentum. When I spoke to Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister, one of the main issues of our conversation was about the prospect of peace and negotiations. And, you know, he was quite stern. He was like, how can you negotiate with someone who is committing war crimes in your country, who is murdering your people for no reason, who attacked you for no reason. But equally, he also recognised that there will be a time that negotiations will come, and that's the only way wars end, is through diplomacy, is through being together at the negotiating table, but that his goal as, you know, as Ukraine was to make sure that Ukraine could approach that moment of negotiations in the best position possible, removing any chance of Russia ever making ultimatums when the time comes. Uh, Jack, uh, Marcus mentioned Estonia earlier, who have been uh, keen advocates for Ukraine and keen advocates of of European unity behind Ukraine. You have been partaking aquatically of their Independence Day celebrations. Yes, that's right. I've uh, spent, well, two days now in a row with uh, the ambassador, Mr. Villiar Luby. On Thursday, I interviewed him, and this morning I woke up extra early and we met at London Serpentine and went for a little dip into the Serpentine, only for a minute or two, let's say two, and then I moved (laughs) out and then went to a sauna for about 30 seconds. Um, are you sure you have acquired no interesting waterborne diseases from a two-minute dip in the serpentine? So I'm not sure I'd fancy that, at, you know, even in high summer. I, M- most g- people only go swimming in the serpentine when they fall out of one of the pedalos. Oh, that's always what's happened to me in the past. This is completely <laughs> different. Um, I'm not sure yet. Well, it will remain to be seen. But did you did you talk about Estonia's attitude to? this war because we've had a lot of current and former Estonian politicians on our various shows especially on the foreign desk we've had former presidents Ilves and Kalulade and they have been among the most uh, strident defenders uh, of Ukraine and and also among the most strident defenders of Western Europe for their naivety rethinking that Russia could ever be persuaded to be just another normal European country. Yeah, well, um, Carlotta spoke about the generosity of smaller nations, and I think this is particularly prevalent with Estonia, who have committed more than half their entire defence budget mm-hmm. to military support uh, for but, Ukraine. But per capita, the three biggest supporters of Ukraine are the three Baltic states. There you go. I mean, it, it's currently just over 1% of their GDP, which is the most of any other nation for a percentage of their GDP, has gone towards military support in Ukraine. And I think this generosity is just its quite incredible that Luby was trying to stress to me that he thinks that raising defence spending to 3% for these NATO allies is no no problem at all. And he's surprised it's taken this long. He even referenced in the Cold War how nations were typically spending about 5% for this and he you know he echoed the thoughts of the foreign minister um, Asrain Salu in lobbying for NATO nations to hurry up basically and commit to 3% as the benchline Estonia. Estonia obviously remembers very well what 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 their history is and and what that 
that small nation has gone through. I think I think a great reminder is I was I was at, at Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallas's office about a year and a half ago when we interviewed her for the chiefs and 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 I remember being there with my colleagues and looking at many pictures of these these politicians you see in any any official office and then you look at the dates below when they were born and when they were when they died and then you start seeing these years that keep on repeating it was 1940 it was 1941 in some cases 1942 and then you realize that Estonia lost its independence in 1940 and the Soviet occupation began then so you know what kind of a purge that country went through and how how, how so many people had to lose their lives uh, Marcus Chuck and Carlotta thank you we will have more from you shortly but now when war broke out a year ago today the members of the popular Ukrainian band Antetilia went from headlining gigs to saving the lives of soldiers as part of a paramedic squad on the front lines. But Antetilia will ultimately given an order by their commander to leave the trenches in order to work as de facto musical ambassadors for Ukraine. They have since performed alongside the likes of Ed Sheeran and Bono and appeared on TV around the world. Well, Monocle's Laura Kramer caught up with their frontman, Taras Tapolia. She, she began by asking about the band's friendship with President President Volodymyr Zelensky, who before the war appeared in one of their music videos. I met him before the war. We created a, a musical video together. And also I know him, uh, I know his friends, I know his wife, our first lady. And after the war started, to, we met a couple of times with him and with uh, his uh, head of presidential office, Andriy Yermak. We are staying in touch. And how do you think he has represented Ukraine on the world stage? He's met so many leaders. Mostly, mostly everybody in Ukraine proud of, of him. And I'm also. He is doing all the best. He's trying to reach uh, this victory, to get this victory. He really feels everything that happens. And uh, he's still being human. All I want to do every time when I'm watching him is to say thank you and to hug him. Because uh, I can't imagine how could everything be if, if another person will uh, be on, uh, in the presidential chair. You've been making a lot of appearances on many TV shows, I know, including in Finland, for example. How does the process work of getting in touch with these different countries? First of all, uh, it was a big pleasure to come to Finland. Finnish people are supporting Ukraine so much. You know, we have a lot of similar in our history with Finnish people because in last century uh, they were also attacked by Russians, by Soviet Union, and uh, it was unprovoked uh, escalation and their people were also fighting and resisting against a huge enemy and they were not defeated. So they resisted and finally they get not like a full victory, but they saved their country. That's what we are doing now in Ukraine. We are resisting against huge enemy, and our main goal is the same. Uh, we want our country to exist. We want our country to be independent and, and free. So Finnish people understand this, and uh, they are, are totally supporting Ukraine in this. And it was, it was a big pleasure for me to, to hear it when I was in Finland. We are traveling, we are giving concerts all over the world, mostly in Europe, to share information about this war, to share the truth and to speak with people using this wonderful tool uh, as a music. 
And you will be performing a fundraising concert in London on the 26th of February. Tell us about that. It will be a couple of our albums and uh, it will be in new songs. I hope that we will gather a lot of uh, Ukrainians in this concert. Uh, money from, from this concert will be used uh, to help uh, Ukrainian children, children of our battalion that this war left without their father. So our main goal uh, is also to help uh, those kids uh, in, in everything uh, that they need. That was Taras Tapolia from Antetilia speaking to Monocle's Laura Kramer. And on a related note, the power that matters most immediately to Ukraine is obviously the hard power of its military and the kit with which its allies are supplying it. But Ukrainian soft power has also been an important part of its war, especially in terms of rallying support abroad, very much including the virtual world tour of its comedian-turned-president, but also embracing the wit with which Ukraine has conducted itself in the online theatre and cultural endeavours like Ukraine's absolutely inevitable triumph in last year's and indeed this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Um, Carlotta, let's start with Eurovision, in which uh, obviously Monocle will be taking a keen interest. You are our deputy Eurovision desk chief, among other titles. In fact, there's no chance they're not going to win again, is there? It's going to be very, very hard, and <laughs> particularly I don't know. Uh, oh, this uh, just this week, the um, the winner, Kalush Orchestra, their frontman, uh, was talking about you know he's being interviewed about Eurovision, etc. Uh, Olepsiuk, that's his name. Uh, he was giving an interview about Eurovision and Ukraine's prospects, and he he said that he would love that Ukraine, for Ukraine to be able to host in 2024. Mm. Now, there's only one way to do that is by winning again, and uh, for the country to be back uh, in peace and uh, peacetime and to be able to actually host the show as it should have been this year. But it's just amazing how you mentioned their soft power, how Eurovision really, that win really did give such a boost of morale back home. Uh, When I did my first trip uh, after the war started, which was in June, um, every couple of minutes on the radio station the song would come up you would enter a taxi and it was playing and it wasn't you know just for show people really uh loved it and what it's what it signaled that you know it showed that okay we've been hearing from all these politicians that they're behind us but they felt that the people of all these countries that voted for Ukraine's entry were behind Ukraine too. And um, when I went to one of the trips, we went to Bucha and Irpin, and this was after um, a few months after the liberation of both cities. The reconstruction had begun, and we visited the old uh, theater, the old, no, the theater in Irpin, which is destroyed to ruins and was burned down, shot at, completely burned to the ground. And Kalush Orchestra used that as one of their venues to shoot the music video for the song Stefania that won Eurovision. Uh, they chose several locations, but choosing a recently liberated, burned down theater, a place where culture comes together, where people gather for happy occasions, was very significant. And there was a discussion at the time whether or not the rebuilding of that site should happen immediately or if people should wait exactly so that could become a place for people to ponder on the influence and importance that culture has as well to keep a population alive and, you know, um, with hope. Uh, Marcus, it has been extraordinary watching Ukraine 
present itself on the world stage in the last year, if in obviously suboptimal circumstances. But what have you made of the the role that Ukrainian culture has played in that? And, And also, as part of that culture, the fact that they have somehow incredibly, both official sources and non-official sources, managed to comport themselves with something approaching an actual sense of humour, actually making jokes at the expense of this absurd rampage that Russia has launched. I think it's interesting. I think I, I admire how Ukraine has done what it has in the way it has been presenting itself in the world stage recently, and in particular how their communications have been have been working. Just one example, staying with staying with, with Taras Topolia we heard from a moment ago. I was in Finland in December and I saw this television show that had aired some weeks earlier. It was, it, it's it's one of the most popular shows in Finland called Elamani Bees, the life of the song of my life, where you know, you get celebrities, celebrities talking about the songs that matter to them and sharing stories and anecdotes. And this was a Ukraine special. So Taras was there performing. It was co-hosted by Katerina Osadsha, who is one of the top presenters in Ukraine. We had a couple of other celebrities over there, including an Olympic-level athlete couple also joining that show. And what they mentioned every now and then was that there had been just some other television shows in Europe as well. And I got the impression that this was an actual cultural strike force Ukraine was using in television, you know, taking over these television shows across Europe to get attention to to, to to what's happening in Ukraine and how serious that is. I think it's I think it's amazing how much better I feel like I personally know Ukrainian culture now thanks to all the stuff that's been coming from Kiev. And I think it's I think it's something obviously, you know, being Finnish, I think what would happen if there was a war between Russia and Finland one day, for example. And I'm wondering, would Finland do something similar? I think we definitely would try to do something like this. And I would imagine Whoever is thinking about these things in Finland is looking at the example of of Ukraine, as as are many people in the Baltic states, for example. So, very well done. Because politically and culturally, I think you could say, Carlotta, this this has been an absolute masterclass in communications over the last year, hasn't it? I mean, especially, I mean, it's it's a low bar to get over when you're going up in a comms war with Russia, who have been incredibly leaden and flat-footed and like they don't understand that it's not the 1980s anymore. But but nonetheless, it has been um, you know, a, a, an information war performance uh, for the ages, hasn't it? I think it shows the importance of having uh, younger ministers in charge <laughs> of your digital transformation ministry. Someone who we've also interviewed for a Monocle magazine. Um, uh, no, but uh, all jokes aside, it really has been... Uh, as you say, under a masterclass in how to deliver effective communications, knowing uh, what works in online and what works in print, in radio, on television. The tones are very different. The tone is very mm-hmm. different from one medium to the other. But when you look at what's put out online, for example, from, you know, uh, the jokes to the short clips to the TikToks, whatever you want to call it, like they always strike the correct point. They always reach the correct audience. And this is all part. And of course, then if the foreign minister or Zelensky is giving a long-form interview to the BBC or Al Jazeera, it's not going to be on the same line or tone. And that ability to adapt to the medium you're speaking uh, that you're using to speak uh, with uh, is actually amazing. And I feel like looking at um, just how this messaging of getting to know Ukraine and what Ukraine stands for and what is 
what Ukraine even sounds like. We heard that so much in the beginning of this, like, wow, one of the things about this war is that people actually know now a few words in Ukrainian and when we don't just speak Russian. And the fact that, you know, unfortunately it took this for this generalized awakening and understanding of a culture is a shame, but I'm glad we got to that stage. And I'm gl- glad that, like, I don't think there's a, ter- a point where we can turn back in that sense. And the masterclass in communications has just been a, something like every day, there's just something new from, you know, uh, when the incident happened in uh, Snake Island and uh, the audio that run uh, all, everywhere. Um, they were selling, you know, fridge magnets with that with that uh, cartoon. Where they were in the day after or a few days after, the post office had launched stamps with, you know, the sol- the lone soldier um, telling the Russian ship to do something. And it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 uh, the quick how quick it, uh, the departments have been to react, uh, the comms departments have been to react to what is actually happening has been their biggest strength. And also, I, I need to give like another, you know, big. Soft power shout out to the railways you know mm. i i'm from portugal our trains don't run on time and we don't have a war <laughs> these like ukraine Carlotta, you're broadcasting <laughs> from the united kingdom i know exactly <laughs> so it's like the fact like that the railways have been able to run almost always on time pr- like safely for most of the time as well um sending moving people throughout this gigantic country that most people don't realize how big it is until you actually mm-hmm. visit that was my case for sure I think the railways have also been a great soft power player here. Also, something I've never seen before is obviously that website. I can't remember the name of it straight away, where you can go and actually buy weaponry for Ukraine yourself and write a greeting on the side of a missile. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It will be, I I dare say, studied for years and years to come. Marco Sippi and Carlotta Ribello, thank you both for joining us. And we will finish today's show with the final part of our week-long series of reports on the many impacts of the war on Ukrainians and the many ways they have resisted. This final episode is this week's regular What We Learned monologue, with its remit expanded to reflect on what we've learned since last February 24th. We learned this week that the producers had been having ideas again. No, don't. No, 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 don't, don't. no please don't. In fairness, it doesn't happen that often, and really, what can you do? Always grateful for the support of the general muttered agreement crew at such trying times. We learned that the producers had noticed that February 24th, when this monologue was first due to air, precisely coincided with the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and they reckoned that a reflection on what we have learned from 12 months of Russia's 72-hour special military operation might therefore be in order. So thinking back 12 months, we learned that the word of Russia is not necessarily its bond. We were as shocked as you were, because we had learned as late as February 20th, 2022, that Russia had absolutely no designs on Ukraine whatsoever, that the merest thought of invasion had not even contemplated the vaguest prospect of crossing Russia's mind, and we learned this from no less an authority than Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov. I will start from basic things. There is no innovation 
and there is no such plans. We learned four days later that the ambassador may have neglected to check his spam folder. After months of preparations, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Speaking on national television, Mr. Putin urged Ukrainian troops to lay down their arms and go home. Well, that was the idea. We have been learning since then of the extreme reluctance of Ukraine's troops and Ukraine's people generally to fulfil their assigned role in Vladimir Putin's plan, and we have learned more broadly of the eternal wisdom of the maxim usually credited to the Prussian Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke, along the lines that no plan survives contact with the enemy, later paraphrased by the American boxer Mike Tyson, who noted that everybody has a plan until they get smacked in the mouth. And we learned, indeed, that among those Ukrainians declining to play their part in Putin's plan was Kiev's own heavyweight champion, now the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. The Russians have plans to occupy Kiev already three weeks ago. But our army destroyed whole plans of Russians. And Russians, I am, as mayor, told to you to talk to everyone. Never ever Russians to come to our city. Better we die if give the city to Russia. But we would, from the very first weeks of Russia's onslaught, learn a perhaps more startling tutorial in leadership from an arguably less likely source, specifically the narrator of the Ukrainian releases of the Paddington Bear films. No, мне мило. Я очень надеюсь, что у меня тоже есть такие черты. Ну. And indeed, Ukraine's 2006 Dancing with the Stars champion. We learned that among Vladimir Putin's many misjudgments was one about the metal of his opposite number, a comedian who had campaigned for Ukraine's presidency substantially by starring in a sitcom in which he made fun of Ukraine's presidency. Mr. Kolobarochka, can I connect you with Angela Merkel? Yes, you can connect. Hello, my congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. Oh, fuck! Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, wow! We learned that there are, despite what we had learned from the experiments in this field of one or two other countries, advantages to having a professional showman in charge, as President Volodymyr Zelensky embarked on a virtual world tour by video link, expertly tailoring his routine to the local crowd. To the Parliament of the United Kingdom, he went heavy on the Churchill. We will fight in the forest, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. We will fight on the banks of the rivers and we are looking for your help for the help of the civilized countries. To the Congress of the United States, he reminded of a previous date that would live in infamy. We need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember. And we learned that he'd done his homework on Spain, where he compared Mariupol to Guernica, on France, where he compared Mariupol to Verdun, on Germany, where he spoke of a new wall Moscow was attempting to build across Europe, and invoked a previous entertainer-turned-president who'd had something to say on such subjects. The former uh, actor, U.S. President, um, Ronald Reagan, when he was here in Berlin, he said in his uh, Berlin speech, Mr. President, 
tear down this uh, wall. So let me tell the same thing now. Councilor Schultz, please uh, tear down this uh, wall. Interpreter having a long week, clearly, but you get the gist. But we learned or were reminded that a leader without followers is just a fellow taking a walk. President Zelensky is not the only Ukrainian whose resolve in the face of a dreadful threat we have learned to admire. There are, give or take, 44 million more of them, from whom the rest of us can only hope to have learned something about courage, and if we can't learn that, we can perhaps at least absorb the lesson that little good ever comes of indulging or appeasing tyrants in the hope that they'll calm down eventually. And over the 12 months to date of Russia's absurd, petulant, monstrous rampage, we have learned of no better way of summing it up than the words of Ukrainian border guard Roman Hribov, serving with the small garrison on Snake Island in the Black Sea early in the conflict, who were instructed to surrender by the crew of a Russian warship. And you should not, by now, need a translation for that. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to all our guests today, Natalia Gumanyuk, Carlotta Rebello, Marco Sippi and Jack Simpson. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Have a good weekend, and thank you for listening. Thank you.